Chapter One of Mary Marston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mary Marston by George MacDonald. Chapter One The Shop. It was an evening early in May. The sun was low, and the street was mottled with the shadows of its paving stones. Smooth enough, but far from evenly set. The sky was clear, except for a few clouds in the west, hardly visible in the dazzle of the huge light, which lay among them like liquid that has broken its vessel, and was pouring over the fragments. The street was almost empty, and the air was chill. The spring was busy, and the summer was at hand, but the wind was blowing from the north. The street was not a common one. There was interest, that is, feature, in the shadowy front of almost each of its old houses. Not a few of them wore, indeed, something like a human expression, the look of having both known and suffered. From many a porch and many a latticed oriel, a long shadow stretched eastward, like a death flag streaming in a wind unfelt of the body, or a fluttering leaf, ready to yield and flit away, and add one more to the mound of blackness gathering on the horizon's edge. It was the main street of an old country town, dwindled, by the rise of larger and more prosperous places, but holding and exercising a charm none of them would ever gain. Some of the oldest of its houses, most of them with more than one projecting story, stood about the middle of the street. The central and oldest of these was a draper's shop. The windows of the ground floor enroached a little on the pavement, to which they descended very close, for the floor of the shop was lower than the street. But although they had glass on three oriel sides, they were little used for the advertising of the stores within. A few ribbons and gay handkerchiefs, mostly of cotton for the eyes of the country people on market days, formed a chief part of their humble show. The door was wide and very low. The upper half of it was glass, old and bottle-coloured, and its threshold was a deep step down into the shop. As a place for purchases, it might not to some eyes look promising, but both the ladies and the housekeepers of Tesbridge knew that rarely could they do better in London itself than at the shop of Turnbull and Marston, where the variety, quality or price was the point in consideration. And whatever the first impression concerning it, the moment the eyes of a stranger began to grow accustomed to its gloom, the evident size and plentitude of the shop might well suggest a large hope. It was low indeed, and the walls could therefore accommodate few shelves, but the ceiling, therefore, was so near as to be itself available for stowage by means of well-contrived slides and shelves attached to the great beams crossing it in several directions. During the shop day, many an article, light as lace and heavy as broadcloth, was taken from overhead to lay upon the counter. The shop had a special reputation for all kinds of linen goods, from cambric handkerchiefs, to towels, and from table napkins to sheets, but almost everything was to be found in it, from Manchester moleskins for the navy's trousers, to Genoa velvet for the dowager's gown, and from Horrocks prints to Lyon silks. It had been enlarged at the back by building beyond the original plan, and that part of it was a little higher and a little better lighted than the front, but the whole place was still dark enough to have awaked the envy of any swindling London shopkeeper. 
Its owners, however, had so long enjoyed the confidence of the neighbourhood that faith readily took the place of sight with their customers. So far at least as quality was concerned, and seldom except in a question of colour or shade, was an article carried to the door to be confronted with the day. It had been just such a shop, untouched of even legendary change, as far back as the memory of the sexton reached, and he, because of his age and his occupation, was the chief authority in the local history of the place. As on this evening, there were few people in the street, so were there few in the shop, and it was on the point of being closed. They were not particular there, to a good many minutes either way. Behind the counter on the left hand stood a youth of about twenty, young George Turnbull, the son of a principal partner, occupied in leisurely folding and putting aside a number of things he had been showing to a farmer's wife who was just gone. He was an ordinary-looking lad, with little more than business in his high forehead, fresh-coloured, good-humoured, self-satisfied cheeks, and keen hazel eyes. These last kept wandering from his not very pressing occupation to the other side of the shop, where stood behind the opposing counter a young woman, in attendance upon the wants of a well-dressed youth in front of it, who had just made choice of a pair of driving gloves. His air and carriage were conventionally those of a gentleman, a gentleman, however, more than ordinarily desirous of pleasing a young woman behind a counter. She answered him with politeness and even friendliness, nor seemed aware of anything unusual in his attentions. "'They are splendid gloves,' he said, making talk. "'But don't you think it's a great price for a pair of gloves, Miss Marston?' "'It is a good deal of money,' she answered in a sweet, quiet voice, whose very tone suggested simplicity and straightforwardness. "'But they will last you a long time. Just look at the work, Mr. Helmer. You see how they are made? It's much more difficult to stitch them like that, one edge over the other.' than to sew the two edges together as they do with ladies' gloves. But I'll just ask my father whether he marked them himself. He did mark them, I know, said young Turnbull, who had been listening to all that went on, for I heard my father say they ought to be sixpence more. Ah, then, she returned assentingly, and laid the gloves on the box before her. The question settled. Helmer took them and began to put them on. They certainly are the only glove where there is much handling of reins, he said. That is what Mr. Wardour says of them, rejoined Miss Marston. By the by, said Helmer, lowering his voice, when did you see anybody from Thornwick? Their old man was in town yesterday with the dog cart. Nobody with him? Miss Letty, she came in for just two minutes or so. How was she looking? Very well, answered Miss Marston, with what to Helmer seemed indifference. Ah, he said with a look of knowingness, you girls don't see each other with the same eyes as we. I grant Letty is not very tall, and I grant she is not much of a complexion, but where did you ever see such eyes? You must excuse me, Mr. Helmer, returned Mary with a smile. If I don't choose to discuss Letty's merits with you, she is my friend. Where would be the harm? rejoined Helmer, looking puzzled. I'm not likely to say anything against her. You know perfectly well I admire her beyond any woman in the world. 
I don't care who knows it. Your mother? suggested Mary in a tone of one who makes a venture. Ah, come now, Miss Marston, don't you turn my mother loose upon me. I shall be of age in a few months, and then my mother may think as she pleases. I know, of course, with her notions, she would never consent to my making love to Letty. I should think not, exclaimed Mary. Who ever thought of such an absurdity? Not you, surely, Mr. Helmer. What would your mother say to hear you? I mention her in earnest now. Let mothers mind their own business, retorted the youth angrily. I shall mind mine. My mother ought to know that by this time. Mary said no more. She knew Mrs. Helmer was not a mother to deserve her boy's confidence any more than to gain it, for she treated him as if she had made him, and was not satisfied with her work. "'When are you going to see Letty, Miss Marston?' resumed Helmer, after a brief pause of angry feeling. "'Next Sunday evening, probably.' "'Take me with you.' "'Take you with me? What are you dreaming of, Mr. Helmer?' "'I would give my bay mare for a good talk with Letty Lovell,' he returned. Mary made no reply. "'You won't,' he said petulantly, after a vain pause of expectation. "'Won't what?' rejoined Miss Marston, as if she could not believe him in earnest. "'Take me with you on Sunday.' "'No,' she answered quietly, but with sober decision. "'Where would be the harm?' pleaded the youth in a tone mingled of expostulation, entreaty, and mortification. "'One is not bound to do everything there would be no harm in doing,' answered Miss Marston. "'Besides, Mr. Helmer, I don't choose to go out walking with you of a Sunday evening.' "'Why not?' "'For one thing, your mother would not like it. You know she would not.' "'Never mind my mother. She's nothing to you. She can't bite you. Ask the dentist.' "'Come, come, that's all nonsense. "'I shall be at the stile beyond the turnpike gate all the afternoon, "'waiting till you come. "'The moment I see you, anywhere upon the road, "'that moment I shall turn back. "'Do you think,' she added with half-amused indignation, "'I would put up with having all the gossips of Tessbridge "'talk of my going out on a Sunday evening with a boy like you?' "'Tom Helmer's face flushed.' He caught up the gloves, threw the price of them on the counter, and walked from the shop without even a good night. Hello! cried George Turnbull, vaulting over the counter and taking the place Helmer had just left opposite Mary. What did you say to the fellow who sent him off like that? If you do hate the business, you needn't scare the customers, Mary. I don't hate the business, you know quite well, George. And if I did scare a customer, she added laughing as she dropped the money in the till, it was not before he had done buying. That may be, but we must look to tomorrow as well as today. Where is Mr. Helmer likely to come near us again after such a wipe as you'd given him to make him go off like that? Just tomorrow, George, I fancy, answered Mary. He won't be able to bear the thought of having left a bad impression on me, and so he'll come again to remove it. After all, there's something about him I can't help liking. I said nothing that ought to have put him out of temper like that, though. I only called him a boy. Let me tell you, Mary, you could not have called him a worse name. Why, what else is he? A more offensive word a man could not hear from the lips of a woman, 
said George loftily. A man, I dare say, but Mr. Helmer can't be nineteen yet. How can you say so when he told you himself he would be of age in a few months? The fellow is older than I am. You'll be calling me a boy next. What else are you? You are at least not one and twenty. And how old do you call yourself, pray, miss? Three and twenty last birthday. Ah, oh, a mighty difference indeed. Not much. Only all the difference, it seems, between sense and absurdity, George. That may be all very true of a fine gentleman, like Helmer, that does nothing from morning to night but run away from his mother. But you don't think it applies to me, Mary, I hope. That's as you behave yourself, George. If you do not make it apply, it won't apply of itself. But if young woman had not more sense than most of the young men I see in the shop, on both sides of the counter, George, things would soon be at a fine pass. Nothing better in your head than in a peacock's, only that a peacock has the fine feathers he's so proud of. Mm, if it were Mr. Wardour now, Mary, that was spreading his tail for you to see, you would not complain of that peacock. A vivid rose blossomed instantly in Mary's cheek. Mr. Wardour was not even an acquaintance of hers. He was a cousin and a friend to Letty Lovell, indeed, but she had never spoken to him, except in the shop. It would not be quite out of place if you were to learn a little respect for your superiors, George, she returned. Mr. Wardour is not to be thought of in the same moment with the young men that were in my mind. Mr. Wardour is not a young man, and he is a gentleman. She took the glove-box, and turning, placed it on a shelf behind her. Just so, remarked George bitterly. Any man you don't choose to count a gentleman, you look down upon. What have you got to do with gentlemen, I should like to know? To admire one when I see him, answered Mary. Why shouldn't I? It's very seldom, and it does me good. Oh, yes, rejoined George, contemptuously. You call yourself a lady, but I do nothing of the kind interrupted mary sharply i should like to be a lady and inside of me please god i will be a lady but i leave it to other people to call me this or that it matters little what anyone is called all right returned george a little cowed i don't mean to contradict you i only just only just tell me why a well-to-do tradesman shouldn't be a gentleman as well as a small yeoman like wardour why don't you say as well as a squire or an earl or a duke said mary there you are chafing me again it's hard enough to have every fool of a lawyer's clerk or a doctor's boy looking down upon a fellow and call him a counter jumper but upon my soul it's too bad when a girl in the same shop hasn't a civil word for it because he isn't what she counts a gentleman isn't my father a gentleman answer me that mary it was one of George's few good things that he had a great opinion of his father, though the grounds of it were hardly such as to enable Mary to answer his appeal in a way he would have counted satisfactory. She thought of her own father and was silent. Everything depends on what a man is in himself, George, she answered. Mr. Wardour would be a gentleman all the same if he were a shopkeeper or a blacksmith. And shouldn't I be as good a gentleman as Mr. Wardour if I had been born with an old tumble-down house on my back and a few acres of land I could do with as I liked? Come, answer me that. 
if it be the house and the land that makes a difference you would of course answered mary her tone implied even to george's rough perceptions that there was a good deal more of a difference between them than therein lay but common people whether lords or shopkeepers are slow to understand that possession whether in the shape of birth or lands or money or intellect is a small affair in the difference between men i know you don't think me fit to hold a candle to him he said but i happen to know for all he rides such a good horse he's not above doing the work of a wretched menial for he polishes his own stirrup irons i'm very glad to hear it rejoined mary he must be more of a gentleman yet than i thought him then why should you count him a better gentleman than me i'm afraid for one thing you would go with your stirrup irons rusty rather than clean them yourself george but i will tell you one thing mr wardour would not do if he were a shopkeeper he would not like you talk one way to the rich and another to the poor all submission and politeness to the one and familiarity even rudeness with the other if you go on like that you'll never come within sight of being a gentleman george not if you live to the age of methuselah oh thank you miss mary it's a fine thing to have a lady in the shop shouldn't i just like my father to hear you i'm blowed if i know how a fellow is to get on with you certain sure i am that it ain't my fault if we're not friends mary made no reply she could not help understanding what george meant and she flushed with honest anger from brow to chin but while her dark eyes flamed with indignation her anger was not such as to render her face less pleasant to look upon there are as many kinds of anger as there are of sunsets with which they ought to end mary's anger had no hate in it i must now hope my readers sufficiently interested in my narrative to care that i should tell them something of what she was like plainly as i see her i cannot do more for them than that i cannot give a portrait of her i can but cast her shadow on my page it was a dainty half-length neither tall nor short in a plain well-fitting dress of black silk with linen collar and cuffs that rose above the counter standing in spite of displeasure calm and motionless her hair was dark and dressed in the simplest manner without even a reminder of the hideous occipital structure then in favour especially with shop women who in general choose for imitation and exorbitant development whatever is ugliest and least ladylike in the fashion of the hour it had a natural wave in it which broke the two straight lines it would otherwise have made across a forehead of sweet and composing proportions her features were regular her nose straight, perhaps a little thin, the curve of her upper lip carefully drawn, as if with design to express a certain firmness of modesty, and her chin well shaped, perhaps a little too sharply defined for her years, and rather large. Everything about her suggested the repose of order satisfied, of unconstrained obedience to the laws of harmonious relation. The only fault honest criticism could have suggested, merely suggested, was a presence of just a possible nuance of primness her boots at this moment unseen of any fitted her feet as her feet fitted her body her hands were especially good there are not many ladies interested in their own graces 
who would not have envied her such seals to her natural patent of ladyhood. Her speech and manners corresponded with her person and dress. They were direct and simple in tone and inflection, those of one at peace with herself. Neatness was more notable in her than grace, but grace was not absent. Good breeding was more evident than delicacy, yet delicacy was there, and unity was plain throughout. George went back to his own side of the shop, jumped the counter, put the cover on the box he had left open with a bang, and shoved it into its place as if it had been the backboard of a cart, shouting as he did so to a boy invisible to make haste and put up the shutters. Mary left the shop by a door on the inside of the counter, for she and her father lived in the house, and as soon as the shop was closed, George went home to the villa his father had built in the suburbs. End of chapter 1. The Shop. Recording by Maria Brooke.